All right, let's open our Bibles this morning. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 19. If you're new here or haven't been here for a while, we're studying the life of David by going through 1 and 2 Samuel chapter by chapter and verse by verse. This morning we have a rather long section, but it, it's all one message. It's chapter 19, verses 9 through 43. The topic we'll find there is this. David had fled Jerusalem but he's now invited back to restore his reign over the nation. The title of our message, The King is Fled, Long Love the King. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you this morning. And our only real desire, Lord, is that you would reveal your heart to us and that we would see your longings and your yearnings and your everlasting love for us, your compassion upon the world at large. And that we would come into an alignment with your way of thinking, that we would have your heart and your mind, the mind of Jesus Christ. Lord, if we've come in here with problems and burdens and strugglings, I pray that we would cast them on you, knowing that you care for us. As we sang this morning, Lord, uh, if, if, who can be against us? Uh, you reign, Lord, and I pray that we would return to that understanding. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was only 17 years old when he became pastor of a small chapel in Water Beach near Cambridge. Then at age 19, he was installed as pastor to a congregation at New Park Street Chapel. His arrival soon led to such crowds thronging that the chapel couldn't hold them all. and The services had to be moved to a hired hall where up to 10,000 people assembled. On March 18, 1861, the congregation moved permanently to the newly constructed Metropolitan Tabernacle. It seated 5,000 people with standing room for another 1,000. The Metropolitan Tabernacle was the largest church edifice of its day and is considered a precursor to the modern megachurch. Spurgeon pastored the church there for 38 years. He founded a pastor's college, an orphanage, Christian Literature Society, and the Sword in the Trowel magazine. Over 200 new churches were started in the home counties alone and pastored by students from his college. With all of that going on, you might not expect Spurgeon to ever call upon his congregation to pray for a revival, but he did. Here's what he said in the December 1866 edition of The Sword and the Trowel. Uh, if you're on our email list, you received an invitation to read this article uh, in its entirety. But here's a quote from it. Spurgeon wrote and he said, Brethren, let us seek a revival during the present month that the year may close with showers of blessing and that the new year may open with abundant benediction. Let us pledge ourselves to form a prayer union, a sacred band of suppl uh, suppliants. Uh, I said suppliants the first service and only people from Riverdale understood me uh, a sacred band of suppliance and may God do unto us according to our faith now it might be good to pause and answer the question what is revival well here's how Spurgeon defined it in that same article uh, he said we cannot speak of the revival of a thing which never lived before it's clear that the term revival can only be applied to a living soul or that which once lived. To be revived is a blessing which can only be enjoyed by those who have some degree of life. Those who have no spiritual life are not and cannot be, in the strictest sense of the term, the subjects of a revival. Many blessings may come to the unconverted in consequence of a revival among Christians, 
But the revival itself has to do only with those who already possess spiritual life. A true revival is to be looked for in the church of God. The results of the revival will extend to the outside world, but the revival, strictly speaking, must be within the circle of life and must therefore essentially be enjoyed by the possessors of vital godliness and by them only. Is not this quite a different view of revival from that which is common in society, but is it not manifestly the correct one? And so revival then, it's not a series of meetings in which non-believers are being evangelized. It may result in many non-believers coming to the Lord, but it doesn't start there. It starts with we who are saved, It is a stirring within the heart of a Christian and, of course, in the church to return to a previous passion for the Lord. It's just a matter of fact that as we journey homeward to heaven, there are going to be times in which we individually need reviving. And it's equally true that churches, even our church, will need times of revival. Students of past revivals always say, and they're correct, It is a sovereign work of God. Revival is always the sovereign work of God. God does it where and when he pleases. While that is true, it does not cancel out seeking after God for that work. After all, we might say that salvation is a sovereign work of God, but we share the gospel and we urge folks to respond. In fact, we command men everywhere to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so while it is a sovereign work of God, it doesn't mean that we do nothing about it. And the same is true of revival. We should take that same approach. It is the sovereign work of God and we ought to expect him to do it for us as we ask and seek and knock. Now, our passage in 2 Samuel can give us some encouragement to seek the Lord for both personal and corporate revival. It describes the return of the king to his proper reign over the nation. We might describe revival just that way, as the return of our king, Jesus Christ, to his proper reign over us as individuals and over our church. One verse in particular kind of captures this thought. It's verse 14 in chapter 19. We read there, it says, So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, Return you and all your servants. The Lord, I'm sure, wants to sway our hearts individually so that when we gather together, it is as if we had the heart of one man in our worship. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points this morning. Number one, invite the Lord to sway our hearts before him as one man. And number two, invite the Lord to sway your heart before him as his man. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 9 through 15, speaking mostly of the corporate life of the church. Now, the rebellion against King David was ended. It ended when Joab killed the rebel, David's son Absalom. The leaders of the nation, however, were either hesitant or negligent in bringing David back to the throne. And so that's what we pick up in verse 9. Now, all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? 
since the words of all Israel have come to the king, to his very house. You are my brethren. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? Reality check number one in any talk about revival in the church has to do with the leaders God has raised up. The king must be our passion. He must be my passion as a leader in the church. Now, I want to point out two things from these verses specifically about leaders. And, and this, this whole section is pretty much about the leadership of the church as you would expect it would be. Uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of times it's easy for leaders to look at people and say, oh, those people, you know, I wish they would get excited about the Lord and I wish they would do this and that. And here we see that it's the people saying, boy, I wish the leaders would get excited about the Lord and tell us what to do. And so two things about the leaders. First, the leaders of Israel said, quote, nothing about bringing back the king. And so whether they said nothing at all or they talked about things that were frivolous, uh, they did not point people back to the Lord in a spiritual sense. They didn't point others to the king. While there is a time for everything under the sun, I want to keep my contact with God's people spiritual. I want to point them to Jesus Christ. I want to be sure he's my king and that he's their king and that we're both serving him. Now, second, it says the leaders were, quote, the last to bring the king back to his house. Now, in context, by house, this meant David's palace. For us, it would be an exhortation to be in God's house, which is the gathering together of God's people. God's house, this church, this building isn't God's house. We are God's house wherever we gather together. We were just as much God's house at the YMCA as we are here. We're just more comfortable here as God's house, which is nice because we're older uh, and I need the comfort. But anyway, that's a whole separate. So God's house is the gathering of God's people. This would be a modern version of this would be our, like saying, I'm here. So where are the leaders that God has raised up among us? Why aren't they here in God's house where they ought to be to minister to God's people. And so, uh, the, you know, the biggest reality check of revival is that it's about me personally before it's about anyone else. And, and I think every Christian has a tendency to think, well, I'm doing pretty well. Everybody else is blowing it. Uh, and so uh, if you remember nothing else from this morning, it's that God wants me to examine my own heart and when we're talking about the church, that means we need to look at the leaders of the church, in our case, pastors, elders, deacons, those kinds of people, and ask these questions. Now, verse 13, say to Amasa, are you not bone, uh, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. General Joab had defied David's direct command to not kill Absalom. Whether we think Joab was right or wrong to have killed him, in the military, that kind of thing could not go without reprimand. So David appointed a new general. Same thing happens in our world today. Every once in a while, doesn't really matter who the president is, who the commander-in-chief is, every once in a while, some admiral or general makes a statement that is critical of the commander-in-chief, and it's not long before that guy is retired. Uh, and, and put out to pasture, because even if he was right, 
You just can't do that kind of thing and maintain military discipline. And so Joab uh, is temporarily going to be shelved here. I don't want to make too much of this in terms of application except to say that it appears that no one is expendable. Leadership isn't so much a right as it is a responsibility. It's not so much a position I earn as it is a recognition of my passion to serve the Lord. If I leave that passion, letting other passions obviously take its place, then I have effectively forfeited my position even though I might hold it in name. You understand what I'm saying? And so uh, this idea of leadership in the church uh, it has to do with daily passion for the Lord. Yes, it is a position, it's a role, it's a responsibility, but it has to be maintained in my heart attitude. Verse 14, So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, Return you and all your servants. Then the king returned, came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go meet the king, to escort the king across Jordan. The leaders responded, and then the people followed, and thereby the king swayed the hearts of all the men. They had one heartbeat, and it was to see the return of the king to reign over them. Without ever losing our individuality, the Lord wants our heart as a church body to beat as one. So, I mean, if you keep in the analogy of the, the church being the body of Christ, he's the head, we're the body, you would expect that there would be a, a regular heartbeat and that we would be in line with that. Now, I'm not saying this doesn't exist already. Talks like this have a tendency to always be negative or to be received as rebukes. You know, when you talk about revival, you think, oh, I guess we're not revived. All right, how long is this going to go? Because that biscuit sounds all the more better right now. Talk about revival. I have a stomach revival going on right now. And so I know, you know, I, I mean, even to myself, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, you know, I don't want to just beat myself up with this text. I know you want to encourage. Uh, and so I'm not saying that, you know, we're in a total state of disarray or everybody's a, a sinner or anything like that. And there's a difference between a man speaking words to rebuke you and God using his word to sway our hearts. Although we have, I believe, an amazing church. When I'm down with all these other Calvaries, I don't care how big the church is, I don't care how small it is, uh, our church, you know, and this is maybe carnal for me to say this, I'll have to repent after I say it, but there's nothing lacking in our church in terms of, of fervor and zeal for the Lord and worship and the Word and all the things that we're doing. I mean, I love our church. It's an amazing church filled with wonderful saints. Obviously, it can't be an amazing church unless it's... It's the saints that comprise the church. But, quite honestly, I wouldn't say we are in some kind of full-blown revival. I may not know what that even looks like, but I don't think that that's happening in our midst. And so, it is possible to be an amazing church and not be fully revived. It's also possible to be doing everything you're supposed to be doing, and fall even a notch below that and be like the church at Ephesus in the book of the Revelation where Jesus says, you're doing everything. It's pretty amazing, all the work you're doing, but you don't love me anymore. There is no passion for me in what you're doing. There might be a zeal for the ministry, a passion for the work, but there's no personal passion for Jesus Christ. And so this is the word of God. God comes to us and he says, you need to have a heart check every now and then in your personal life 
in your corporate life. And the first step towards keeping what we already have, not becoming like the church at Ephesus, and actually having more, having revival, is to be honest about a need for it. To be open to God bringing it in whatever form He chooses. It's no good resting on our laurels or looking back on what we've accomplished. We need to be certain that Jesus is enthroned every day in a fresh new excitement as we await His imminent return for us with His reward in His hand. Now, the remainder of the verses, we're going to go through them as quickly as we can. They are about individuals and in them we can see our own heart. Uh, If we are to experience revival the return of the king, as it were, then we must start not with others, but with ourselves. He must sway my heart if he is to have any effect in the larger congregation. And so verse 16, Shimei, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite who was from Bahurim, uh, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, his 15 sons and 20 servants with him. And they went over to the Jordan before the king. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come to you today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord the king. You remember the story, Shimei had cursed David and thrown stones at him as he fled from Jerusalem during the Absalom rebellion. He was related to King Saul, I believe the grandson of King Saul, and he thought David was getting what he deserved. And so as David fled, he was cursing him and hurling rocks at him. Now he comes, the very first person to ask forgiveness. If revival is to occur in my heart, I need to deal with any sin I find there. I need to come clean before the king. Ask for his forgiveness. It may be something very obvious. It might be something I've fallen into that I am continuing in. It may be something very subtle, an attitude or a sin of the spirit. It might be just some place that I don't have the mind of Christ, where I'm harsh or judgmental or negative or something like that. It doesn't really matter. But if I continue in my sin... It's like throwing rocks at the Lord on the cross and cursing Him, saying, Lord, I know that the Bible says that I can be free of this sin, that I can be not only forgiven of it, but I can be free from it and not have to be enslaved to it, not enjoy it even, and yet I don't want that. I want to keep this part of my life or I'm not even recognizing this as a problem. And so just, you know, I don't need the work that you did for me on the cross in this area. And it's a frightening thing to put it in those terms, to see myself as a Shimei in that sense. But if I do, then I need to see myself in the second sense, just coming immediately to the king and saying, Lord, you just forgive me. Do not impute my iniquity to me, but apply the blood of Jesus Christ. Apply your forgiveness. I want to come clean. Then in verse 21, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death in Israel? For I do not know that, uh, for do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, Shimei, you shall not die. And the king swore to him. David was in a forgiving mood. 
It was time for reconciliation, not revenge. The application I'd make here for us is to think about how we look upon others. Of course, they deserve death, but the thoughts of Jesus toward them are to forgive that they might live. This reminds me of the situation where uh, the two men were in the temple praying and one was beating on his chest saying, Oh, forgive me, Lord, I'm such a sinner. And the other one was pointing his finger saying, Man, I'm glad I'm not a sinner like that guy. And so on the one hand, we come as Shimei confessing and asking for forgiveness. And if we're not, we're sort of standing there like this other guy saying, Hey, I've arrived. I'm there. There's nothing I need to deal with in my life. I'm fully sanctified, I'm holy before the Lord, Uh, and I look at other people. And the the way you know that's not true is how you look at other people. And when you judge them as less spiritual than you, uh, then you don't have Christ's mind. Verse 24, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Therefore, what right have I to still cry out anymore to the king? Now, Mephibosheth, you'll remember, he's the severely crippled relative of Saul to whom David had shown unusual mercy and kindness. Ziba had come to David at the outset of Absalom's rebellion and slandered Mephibosheth with the goal of getting David to give him all Mephibosheth's possessions and land, which he did, Now David learns the truth. Now the thing to note here is that Mephibosheth's condition during the king's absence was uh, dramatic. Uh, He didn't even care for his regular physical hygiene. He didn't change his clothes, which means he didn't shower. He had crippled feet that obviously had to have uh, apparently dressing and uh, uh, changed on them. He didn't change any of the dressing. His beard and mustache grew. He, He looked terrible. Now, I'm not suggesting that revival can be accomplished by quitting showering. That's not the point. Don't start coming to church like that. Well, maybe you can. Well, maybe we could set up a a room for you. The non-showering room. I don't know. But anyway, the suggestion is that the revived heart cares little about the things that the world values in terms of externals. In other words... Mephibosheth was so consumed with the king that he didn't really think that much about the regular external things that uh, most uh, of the time that he had to worry about. And we see uh, his reaction to David's decision in this next verse, verse 29. So the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Ziba divide The land. What? Did I hear that correctly? Ziba deceives David and the resolve for it is to let him keep half of Mephibosheth's land? On what planet is that fair? Just when you're on the verge of revival, 
confessed your sin, you're looking with compassion on others, you're not consumed or concerned with the normal external kinds of things. I mean, you have to still go through your day and work and do all that. You know, it's not the most important thing to you. Then all of a sudden, a test or a trial pops up and shows you if it's all really in your mind or if it's really in your heart. Mephibosheth passes the test in verse 30. He said to the king, that's unfair. No, he doesn't. He says, rather, let him take it all. Inasmuch as my Lord the King has come back in peace to his own house. What? Did I hear that correctly? He relinquishes all his land and to the very person who was lying about him. What's going on here? It's a beautiful example. So you read this stuff and you think, okay, David, what are you thinking? On what planet is this fair? And commentators, they try and figure out, you know, because David did this and the law of God said this and, you know, he was handcuffed and all. God is just leading David. Probably David doesn't even know it and he, he's his this situation. He says, okay, well, let's split the land in half. Uh, Ziva has half and you can have half. It's an off-the-cuff kind of a thing that David does as, as the leader. And, and then the, the thing is, it's a test for Mephibosheth because he just said, here I am, I haven't even shaved my feet. You know, I stink. I haven't taken a shower. These are the clothes of because I love you so much. And then the king says, in a sense, how much do you love me? What if I don't give you your land back? What if you only get half of it back, which is worse than not getting any of it back because half of it is going to stay in the command of the person who deceived you and, and was unfair towards you. And Mephibosheth says, I don't care. Don't you get it, David? I don't care. As long as you're the king, as long as you're on the throne, that's all I care about. Wow. The only point of reference I have for something like this is to remember back to when I first got saved. Pam and I didn't care about anything. All of a sudden, it was like, hey, we're saved. We're on our way to heaven. Wow, that's cool. House is in foreclosure? Praise the Lord. (laughs) And you know what? Our house was in foreclosure. I I guess I didn't go to the Dave Ramsey seminar, you know, but (laughs) our house is in foreclosure. Well, what are you going to do? There's only so much money. Uh, you know, God took care of it. I remember one time I was uh, working as a sales manager and uh, just got brand new 19, I think it was the 88 or 89 Honda Prelude, the first Prelude that came out, Midnight Blue. Man, what a great car. It is the greatest car I've ever owned. I love that car. And, and so I got this brand new, beautiful little Honda Prelude. You know, no one else even had one in San Bernardino. I've got this. One of my sales gals, she has her cars in the shop. She wanted to know if she could borrow my car to go run an errand. So, yeah, sure, no problem. Ten minutes go by. She comes back in the office and she looks weird. She's, and she's a little disheveled. And she goes, can I talk to you? And I go, yeah, sure. And she goes, I'm sorry. I go, why? I got rear-ended in your car. I go, really? Let's go check it out. I went out there and sure enough, the whole back end of my car was destroyed. It was wiped out. I said, oh, well. I literally said, oh, praise the Lord. And she was mind blown. She said, that's it? You're not mad? I didn't lose my job? It's a car. There's body shops. What's the problem? Fast forward. Now it's 2011. (laughs) Going to Lancaster about a month ago to go to a, a board meeting, a church board meeting. Truck throws a rock and hits my windshield in my little blue clown car that I drive now. 
It's getting bigger every day. Driving me crazy. Ask Pam. I mean, little thing, I just, I obsess over. Lord, I'm serving you. I'm going to a board meeting. I'm in a, a church board meeting, not just any board. It's my own time, my own effort, my own energy to serve you, Lord. What's with the rock? Somewhere in the back of my head, I hear somebody saying, there's glass shops that take care of stuff like that. I know, but it's such a hassle. And so anyway, apparently I'm not in revival mode when it comes to my vehicles. I'm making light of it, but it's real. That's what the Lord is showing. It's true. It's real. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. When we first got saved, I guess we were vibed. And now we need to be revived. Verse 31, Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogelim and went across uh, the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanam, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, come across with me and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and the bad and the ugly? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Barzillai's life was all about using the time and the talent and the things that God had given him to support the king in his work. He did it without accolades and he wasn't looking to be recognized or rewarded this side of eternity. Perhaps we see in Barzillai what our life can accomplish when we are revived. Our time and our talent and our things will be gladly dedicated to the Lord, submitted to him for his use as he sees fit. Verse 37, please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Those of you who are looking for boy names. Hey, really? I mean, come on. How many Chimhams do you know? For short, you call him Chim or Chimney or Hammy. Or, I mean, it's, it's a great name. It's too bad I can't have children anymore. I'd, I'd have a Chimham. I'm just going to start calling people Chim here. Anyway, let him cross over with my Lord, the king, and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Chim Ham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over to the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his, old, uh, his own place. Barzillai understood his time was ending. He'd serve right up to the end, but others, in this case, Chimham, would carry on the work. You know, all of us have a very brief time on the earth, a relatively short window of opportunity during which to serve the Lord. Soon we're going to be looking back on it, and I guarantee all of us will want our lives to speak of good works that we discovered by walking with the Lord. Not just old men and women. The Lord is coming imminently, so some people are going to be very young when the Lord returns. And so we have a short window of time, uh, relatively speaking, in order to serve the Lord. If, if you had an opportunity to go back in time and, let's say, buy stock in Apple computers, you'd be a millionaire right now. Uh, those of you who invest, if you could look back and say, man, 
oh man, what, if only I had done that, I'd be set for life. And in, a, in an interesting, similar sense, all of us, all of us that are Christians, are going to come to a point where we're going to look back over our life and think, I had opportunities to invest in the kingdom of God. And man, the dividends that pays far beyond owning stock in Apple computer, better than getting a new iPad 2. Because I have an inheritance waiting for me in heaven. Uh, And so this Barzillai is a guy that you look at and think, I want to come to the end of my Christian walk and have it said of me that I supplied the kingdom of God with whatever it is God gave me to steward over. Uh, Not because I was looking for anything, but just because it was the right thing to do. The revived heart has a sense of urgency in spiritual business in furthering the kingdom. Verses 40 through 43, Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. <clears throat> and the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, saying, We have ten shares in the king, because there were ten tribes. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you, nanny, nanny. And why then do you despise us in the Hebrew? Uh, why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back the king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Uh, they were the first ones to advise it, but they were also the first ones to go in the rebellion with Absalom. And they seem to have forgotten that. Uh, what's happening here in terms of our theme? It's telling us that revival is going to be a constant need and a constant pursuit because though we might be being revived, there's always going to be others who are not and their arguments and their clamoring and their depression and all the things that they go through, it's going to want to undermine revival if we are not mindful of it. It's going to bring us down the way the world does. Now, I began by quoting Charles Spurgeon. Apparently, his church was kicking off a December of meetings emphasizing revival. The typical thing to do is to think, okay, Lord, we're going to cancel everything and and just go for revival. But I don't really think we need a special schedule of meetings. What we need to do is look at the meetings that we've already scheduled. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Monday evening and Wednesday morning for the men, Saturday night for prayer and emphasize a pursuit of the presence of God, seeking Him for revival in each of them. And in other words, what I'm saying is we already have the meetings. What we need is to meet and to come with a heart to pursue God in a new sense. The question is, do I want to be revived? We'll answer it every day by our passion, either for more of the Lord or for something else that may be getting in the way. That's a question each of us has to answer for ourselves. Revival is a sovereign work of God and we ought to expect Him to do it as we ask and seek and knock. Now, as we close, we're going to sing a couple of worship songs so that we can kind of let this, I believe the word is ruminate, in our hearts. Uh, We're going to turn this over in our hearts. Uh, I want you to, as we sing and as you sing, if you feel led... Ask yourself, who do I most resemble in this text? 
Am I Abishai, looking upon others as needing judgment rather than extending them compassion and mercy? In other words, do I think I'm doing perfectly well and that others need to become as spiritual as I am? Or am I the ten tribes insisting on fairness in everything and thinking legalistically and thinking that I've, you know, I've got everything lined up and that God needs to, I deserve that God would give me certain things? Or am I Shimei constantly approaching the king to ask his forgiveness for the rocks I've thrown at him and the way my behavior has cursed the cross upon which he died to set me free from sin? Or am I Mephibosheth, caring as little as possible about the things of this world in comparison to my Lord and thereby successfully navigating through trials? Or am I Barzillai, tirelessly serving the Lord with my time and talent and things, having a real sense of urgency at his imminent return? to rapture the church. Let's worship the Lord.